0: From the Alexa in your kitchen to the smart TV in the bedroom, you've got smart devices peppered all over the house. So wouldn't it make sense to place the best tech in every part of your home? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. With advanced technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing, it offers personalized setting from ambient color lighting and built-in audio speaker system to a heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.
1: Support for this episode comes from Viator. One app, over three hundred thousand travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.
2: Matt, I enjoyed a brief interlude with your son yesterday to talk about you, Ulysses S. Grant. Oh yeah, what? Good times. Aww, <laughs> I was biking past, and we had obviously the brief conversation you have when you're biking past someone you haven't seen in a while, which is to talk about the Civil War.
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are back with the Classic Tuesday panel. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Koston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, The long-awaited white paper lottery is upon us, and we will be discussing that at the end. Uh, But for the the, the main discussion on the show, we wanted to talk about the second term of Donald Trump. Um, And so to sort of give some of the the background of my, my thinking about this you know after election day uh 2016 you know i think a lot of people had opportunity to look back on what they'd done what they hadn't done and i would say one of my big regrets is that you know i had participated in a fair amount of coverage of donald trump like as a spectacle or donald trump as a low probability catastrophe but not that much coverage of like donald trump as a normal political occurrence, just like what will happen if Donald Trump becomes president. And it was something that at Vox, we did a lot of scrambling on in the sort of 36, 72 hours after the election was to, like, write articles about, like, what legislation were House Republicans working on and waiting for a Republican president to sign? What agency decisions would they make? And this is a different situation. I mean, Trump's odds seem worse. Uh, also, second terms are typically just less exciting than first terms. But it, it strikes me again that it's like we have not seen a lot of discussion of, like, Say things turn around for the GOP. Like, who knows? It's a crazy polling error or like Hunter Biden does something crazy. Like, what is their governing agenda coming forward? Because it's something people should know about. And I think that starts with what they are actively doing this fall, which is trying to confirm another Supreme Court justice, there will. You know, it's possible that, um, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas would step down in a second Trump term. It's possible that one of the remaining Democratic justices will be off the bench for for health reasons. It's certain that there will continue to be district and circuit court vacancies. And Jane, I, I know this is something you've been thinking about, but it's like there's a lot of ferment. Uh, in sort of highbrow conservative ranks. But one thing that makes the judges issue special is that like people who love Trump, people who hate Trump, people who regret that Trump has not been more of an innovator. Like it, it feels to me like this is the thing that like all conservatives really agree that they're like Federalist Society guys are great and that this... There's no there's no real fracturing of the coalition around this judges thing.
2: I wrote earlier this year that I thought that there might be some beginnings of those fractures depending on who this nominee happened to be whenever there was going to be another Supreme Court nominee. And because it's Barrett, who I think a lot of people wanted Barrett instead of Kavanaugh, um, if you go back to the before times, which the, the Kavanaugh nomination process seems like it took place 3,000 years ago, but it was just two years ago. Um, but you see that the implication here And the the transactional relationship between many conservatives, whether they're social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, Republicans writ large, is if you vote for Republicans, it's not necessarily that Republican things will happen that you like. Maybe you'll get tax cuts, but like in general, and I think, Matt, you were saying something about this on Twitter, that in general, this will not stop like ads with gay people from being on your television. What will likely happen is what that What was you... Rod
3: Dreyer mad about the other day? Was Rainbow uh, Oreos?
2: Yes, because, you know, that's, again, it's, it's the, this entire concept that there is this cultural war where the only thing that the people you vote for could do about it is tweet something about it, which gets- and a whole other line of thinking. But, but so um, judges, you can appoint right. judges. Yeah, you 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 can get judges. You can get judges. But the the entire tr- part of the transaction of this is that the judges will then make decisions that you like. The challenge is that. Um, occasionally when you get nominated to the Supreme Court and you get a spot in the Supreme Court, you cease to really give a fuck about things, whether that's on one side or another. And so you have had, uh, earlier this year, a number of decisions on... um, sexual orientation and gender identity issues, including on Bostic and a couple of others, in which a host of conservatives were like, whoa, 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 you can't make these decisions. And people on the court are like, tough. Life's tough. It's a lifetime appointment. I'm just going to go to Red Rocks with my friends and maybe watch theater on Zoom. So Red Rocks is a pizza place in D.C. that apparently Clarence Thomas used to go to all the time. But I think that with Barrett, it's good pizza, it's good pizza with with Barrett. There is an understanding that that would not be what would happen. But again, who knows? You know, the history of Supreme Court nominations is that people get nominated with the expectation that they will maintain a particular political valence and then they get on the court and then they don't do that. But I think that it is fascinating to me because I think that the focus here on judicial issues is a recognition that the entities that cons- that make up the conservative construct that is upon which basically the only thing they can really agree is on the importance of judicial nominations especially with an understanding that they believe that okay if this is going if the courts are going to be where legislation is quote unquote made which is an understanding they have based on what they think liberals do well, then we need to just get our judges on there and then the things we like will happen. But i th- it's fascinating also because it is something that you get people who are Trump skeptical, Trump phobic, Trump against, where they can say, okay, we do like these judicial nominations and we're in this for judicial nominations. And I, I think one of the biggest challenges in our politics is that Whatever the quote unquote elites on our side think we think is reflective of what everyone on our side thinks, and whatever the elites of what their side thinks is you know somehow entirely disconnected from real america so i if you go back and read a bunch of pieces from late twenty eighteen, there was this idea that there was going to be a red wave that would help Republicans keep the house because everyday Americans were absolutely outraged by how Brett Kavanaugh was treated. And then that didn't happen. And it's not that everyday Republicans were or were not outraged. It's just that many people, uh, there's actually an interesting piece on this in the New York Times, many people do not pay attention to these things with these level of strict scrutiny to borrow a legal term that we do or yeah yeah sorry about that dara no you're not (laughs) (laughs) no i'm not but like the idea that this is something that you're like okay we're gonna need to like this is gonna galvanize voters and i think that that's been something democrats have talked about for a long time is that in 2014 the supreme court was not a Or 2016, the Supreme Court was not a critical issue for down ballot Democratic voters when in 2020 it probably is. But I think that that focus is something that I find really interesting. So
3: wait, I want to make two points about. Clarence Thomas, uh, that, that I think are are relevant to thinking about a more conservative dominated future. One is that, you know, he has pretty good taste in in restaurants. He he likes Red <laughs> Rocks, uh, he likes Florida Avenue Grill. In general, if you're looking everybody at everybody
2: likes Florida Avenue yeah, Grill. Yeah, but so if you if you wanna know
3: where to where to eat like casual meal in D.C. You could you could do worse than follow uh, follow Justice Thomas. Uh, but uh, another interesting thing about him that has not been relevant in approximate sense. Right. So, Jane, you were talking about the sort of divide between hardcore conservative justices and sort of squishes focusing on some of the social issues, particularly right. around LGBT rights where um Kennedy and gorsuch and and before them um uh Sandra Day O'Connor would sometimes break with the with the right block, uh, but those judges had. You know, they were all Republican appointees, right? I mean, conservatives have sometimes like retconned what was happening with Kennedy and Senator Day O'Connor. but like their presence on the court reflected the fact that the Reagan era version of the conservative movement was only like half in on evangelical Christianity as a as a as a movement block, and that among elite conservatives, there are some people who have some sympathy for aspects of the LGBT rights agenda, um, which is like why some conservative judges do, too, on economic issues, they were very solid, right? I mean, you would see five, four cases with O'Connor and the majority striking down regulations. But there was a divide on economics within the conservative camp in which Thomas would frequently say what we should be doing. He would agree with the liberals, right? So some new issue would arise. And the liberals would say, this is really just the same as a million New Deal cases that we decided were okay. And people like um, Justice Rehnquist or Justice Roberts or Justice Gorsuch would say, no, 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 this is actually different from those cases. I'm going to draw a distinction. Thomas would agree with the liberals. He would say, no, you're right. This is the same as those New Deal precedents, but the New Deal precedents are wrong and we should be overturning them. And Justice Alito has shown some sympathy for that viewpoint. Um, I don't think we really know what Barrett will say when when she becomes a justice, but this is the sort of frontier of conservative jurisprudence that there has not – it's not just that sporadically liberals have won these cases. There has clearly not been a majority for throwing out well-established things. And so like an interesting moment in the hearings came when Barrett wouldn't say that she felt Medicare was clearly constitutional. She wouldn't say that she thought Brown v. Board of Education was rightly decided. Now, what she said, which I think is true, is that like there isn't going to be litigation about those subjects. You know, like like you don't need to like you know, as a journalist, like don't sit here like white knuckling that the Supreme Court is going to OK formal segregation in, in public schools. But it leaves the door open too. as you put more and more conservative appointees on the bench. Some of them are much more Thomas-esque in their willingness to say, like, this whole past hundred years of jurisprudence was wrong and we need a whole different approach. And you will see more. Influence of that, particularly if it goes from six to seven conservative appointees, particularly as you get cases at the circuit courts that that sort of don't get elevated out of there. And, you know, I I don't know. Like I I don't want to just like tell people scare stories to keep them up at night, because I think that's a poor, you know, use of our time. But like this is an idea that's out
4: there. Right. I mean, the reason that the kind of Thomas trajectory in particular is relevant is, you know, both because ideologically the kind of Thomas strain of conservatism is in fact distinct, as you were saying, but also because there are network effects here that Thomas has become a feeder into both the federal judiciary. There are a lot of Thomas clerks that are that have been getting nominations over the last four years and into the Trump administration. And given the emphasis that we know President Donald Trump places on personal loyalty. It's not unreasonable. And of course, the fact that Clarence Thomas's wife is a very uh, vocal and influential conservative activist. It's not unreasonable to think that there is a relationship between those two and that, you know, should Trump be reelected, we will continue to see an influx of more judges who Clarence Thomas personally likes getting staffed into the lower courts. The flip side of the whole judges broadly thing, though, is the conservative enthusiasm for judges isn't just, I mean, certainly before the uh Amy Coney Barrett nomination, it's not that there was a huge groundswell, and we've discussed this in the past of enthusiasm for Trump in 2020 because he had put, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the bench. There there was a certain, there, there was certainly an extent to which that was seen as the tip of the iceberg of his big achievement. But the whole but the achievement was the totality of the judicial appointments that have been made. And as I think a lot of our listeners are probably at least dimly aware, the main reason that Donald Trump was able to put so many judges on federal district and circuit courts in his first term was that there was an artificial shortage of Federal judges, because Mitch McConnell had blocked so many uh, Obama nominations in the last couple of years of his term. And so that kind of thing is a good example of a first term accomplishment that may or may not be wholly transmittable to the second term. Yes, there will continue to be judicial openings. On the other hand, kind of by definition, you are going to have fewer judicial openings after a four-year period in which you were confirming judges at full speed than you did after a four-year period where you were confirming as few judges as possible. And that's kind of what interests me about the things that are being used to argue for a second Trump term, is that they're not necessarily cases of, you know, we have, of they're they're not necessarily things that you would reasonably expect to see, you know, an administration be better at in its second term than its first term. There's not so much of the like, oh, now that we more fully understand the way the executive branch works, some of the regulations that got, you know, that got overruled because we didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act, we'll do better at those. What you're seeing is a certain extent of, well, our side has been in power and our side being in power, you know, has good downstream effects, such as judicial appointments. The most important thing we can do is keep the ball for four more years. And that tone appears to overwhelm any, you know, campaigning on what exactly Donald Trump hopes to accomplish. Part of that does appear to be because Donald Trump himself is less interested in what he would accomplish substantively than in just continuing to kind of be the person with the megaphone whenever he asks for it. But for all of the efforts to kind of message things around Trump supplement, supplementally for all of the, you know, putting Mike Pence on the trail and, you know, prepping him for his debate with Kamala Harris, there aren't big ticket second item accomplishments that it's possible to point to. And that's, that's not just like, it's, I think that it's, you know, it would be unfair to blame ourselves as the media too much either for 2016 or 2020 in that regard, because when a campaign isn't necessarily running on signature you know, policy proposals or when the proposals they're running on are obviously legislative in nature and therefore it would be arguably misleading to focus on them as things that would happen if this person were elected. It can be very difficult to actually say with any reasonable certainty, here's what we can expect to happen in 2021 through 2024 if this person, you know, becomes elected or reelected office.
3: Sir, so I just I wanted to like ping pong back to to Dara a little bit though because you you mentioned you know Administrative Procedure Act and there's just a gap between like campaign talk and governance. And so I've been struck because it's been bad for my book promotion that Trump has just like stopped talking about immigration as a political issue, which used to be really central to him. But
2: at least as I under it's been fascinating. Also, I'll let you get back to that. But it's been interesting because I went through I'm working on a piece about Trump's campaign and you go through like voter priorities and immigration has like fallen off a bridge in comparison as to what voters say they care about.
4: I mean, immigration is always super low on the list of what voters say they care about unless it's activated by very particular news events. Even in 2016, it wasn't yeah. that consistent. But
3: but 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 at least my understanding is that they continue to be actually rolling out like initiatives <laughs> just cursed, in this yes. space. Right. No, no, no. But I mean, this is important. Right. Because like this is what I'm trying to like do on this show is like not talk about What's happening in the 2020 campaign, but talk about what's happening in the American government. And a an interesting uh, fact that I think has not been really elevated in the course of the campaign, due to a joint tactical decision by Biden and Trump to not talk about it, is that there's like there's a fair amount of momentum. Uh, in the executive branch on sort of ongoing shifts in, in immigration policy. I mean, just just this morning, I saw like whizzing by something about like foreign correspondents may not be able to get visas. I mean, we don't need to go deep on foreign correspondents, but like, like, what are they doing over there? I think that there is
4: a lot more that could be unpacked about the role of or lack thereof of immigration in the 2020 campaign. I think that it's true that they are in fact trying to run on immigration in certain ways. They're trying to refer, they're trying to like revert to the standard script of we're protecting you from dangerous immigrants, which is why they're putting up billboards in, you know, so-called sanctuary cities, which is why Chad Wolf is going around talking about the the results of enforcement operations that may or may not be that much more than how many people they would arrest in a given week anyway. Um, What they're not promoting is the kind of nuts and bolts here are a bunch of regulations that we have proposed that are now going to open for a 30 to 90 day period of comment. And then we're going to have to review all the comments. And then the final rule will come out in the federal register, like partly because that process isn't something you generally hype on the campaign. And partly because the stuff that they're doing isn't like meat and potato stuff. Donald Trump's position politically has always been that the most salient thing about it, about immigration politics is that you can make people afraid of immigrants. And what they've been doing regulatorily is a mixture of filling in the what gaps existed in their framework to prevent people from, get, from uh, applying for asylum or any other form of humanitarian relief if they enter the country without papers. And doing some stuff toward adjusting to make it harder for people to come and stay on student and work visas. The second part of that has never really fit into the Trump agenda. And it's, you know, it, it's interesting that they are, you know, putting effort out on it, but it can be very difficult. And I think this is where kind of pre- going into predicting the second term gets tricky. It's really not easy to know whether so much Regulation has been proposed in the last 12 to 18 months because they've finally gotten the pipeline rolling and the pipeline will continue at full pace and we'll continue to see like them finding places in the code of federal regulations where they can take things that were up to the discretion, like that were case by case discretion and make them categorical, that they can take things that were categorical in terms of being permissive and make them case by case discretion so that you can make it easier to deny people the ability to get or stay into the US. Or if they had a really aggressive one-term regulatory agenda and now they're getting to the end of really aggressive of the really aggressive one-term regulatory agenda. And so in that case, the what you would expect to be the difference between Joe Biden getting elected and Donald Trump getting re-elected is that if Joe Biden gets elected, they're going to try to push that back and anything that hasn't been finalized before a given date, given the way that federal law works will essentially just get like put on hold forever and ever and ever, or whether they'll just be allowed to go forward, but we wouldn't necessarily be seeing, you know, new pushes. And, and so when I, when, I say that they're not going around talking about here are some things that we would be doing that we like expect to do in a second term. We're not hearing a regulatory, you know, th- th- there are things that they're putting on the regulatory agenda, but we're not hearing a bunch of like new ideas that have never been Circulated before, we're not hearing a okay. Here's something, you know. We're now we're really going to turn our attention to bad actor employers. Now we're really going to turn our attention to mandatory e-verify. At one point, it was reported that Stephen Miller has said that he uh, that he has a drawer full of executive orders that have been written but not signed that like were too extreme for the first term. The former official who said that is not the most reliable narrator for one thing, but also like that may exist. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're all ready to go on day one, and I think it's it can be a little bit of a... I, I think it can get very easy to try to figure out what's going on in Stephen Miller's brain rather than to try to you know it, 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 like that can be very easy and not very fruitful. I think it's reasonable to expect that we might see the opening of a front on birthright citizenship because that's something that Donald Trump clearly cares a lot about, that a lot of hardcore restrictionists clearly care a lot about. What that looks like and whether it's something that is designed with any sense of legal plausibility whatsoever is very open to interpretation. And if they decide to go the moderately conservative route of getting a constitutional amendment in there, it doesn't particularly matter that it's on the agenda. It's not going to happen in a four-year span. But beyond that, it's not like we have a list of things that they have decided not to do, and so much of what we knew they wanted to do has been started in the last 12 to 18 months, that it can be kind of tricky to think about what a, it, it can be kind of tricky to figure out whether
3: that pace is likely to be sustained. Okay. So we're going to take a break here and I, I, I want to talk about the budget deficit.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital-I informed, it can help define and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds.
2: The budget deficit that we are going to... Perhaps in a couple of weeks, suddenly start hearing a lot more about after not hearing about it for four years because economic populism will die and we will all move on back to uh, conscious, fiscally conservative libertarianism.
3: Well, so what Jane is referring to is that there has been increasing buzz from Senate Republicans that the budget deficit is a big deal that they're very concerned about the budget deficit. I think. The mainstream interpretation of that is that they expect Joe Biden to win the election. And typically, when a Democrat is in office, it's time for austerity. I would not even take Senate Republicans flip-flopping on that so seriously. Uh, the, the damaging thing, what, what is, is problematic for Democrats is actually uh, leaders of the business community. Right. Sort of wealthy CEOs, uh, when Republicans are in office, get thirsty for tax cuts. Um, So they love tax cuts if they increase the deficit. And they also understand that you may need to do some spending increases to stay popular and keep cutting taxes. And so you have not heard a single CEO of like a name brand American company complain about the budget deficit. During the Trump years, but they complained a lot during the Obama years when the deficit was lower, and that's going to come back in full force, and it and it has impact on Democrats. But if Trump is reelected, I do think that we I, we're positing a weird situation, right? Where like somehow the polls are like badly off. There's a huge GOP landslide. They run Congress again. Uh, then something that I know is in the desk drawer is a series of ideas that Paul Ryan characterized as welfare reform, that he sold Trump on, that they passed in the House of Representatives in 2018. And this is basically at least the way Democrats think about it, the word welfare means the old Aid to Families with Dependent Children or the new Temporary Assistance to Needy Families program, uh, which give cash assistance. But, you know, in the conservative think tank world, they sort of redefined all means-tested programs, including Medicaid, food stamps, Section 8 housing, et cetera, as welfare. Trump has, through administrative action, tried to make it harder to get these benefits in various ways, Uh, but they had a big legislative package to do work requirements, do time limits, cut eligibility, et cetera, on all these means-tested programs. It was going to be a fight in the Senate to see if they could get a second reconciliation bill together to do it. And then what happened is Republicans nominated a uh, child molester in Alabama, And wound up losing. Like you do. You know. I mean, it's just one of these things. Uh, So they lost this safe Senate seat. And we never got full. It wound up being this very consequential moment. Because it went from being something that. McConnell didn't really want to move. A big contentious legislative package through the Senate. Uh, But Paul Ryan like really wanted him to. But then with Doug Jones in. McConnell just kind of. Folded. And he said it wasn't going to happen, that the, the majority was way too thin. If they lost anyone on anything, it wouldn't go. And it just wasn't going to happen. Um, so Republicans now have a much more secure position in in the Senate. This is what on a legislative front, I think conservatives would like to try next is pair back some of these programs. I mean, I don't think the electoral circumstances that would make that possible are, in fact, going to arise. But it's a real, you know, Trump's populism, as Jane can tell us at great length, has has always raised more questions than it answers. Uh, but But it has always, Trump has always, always, always not been a defender. Of those like baseline social safety net concepts, you know, like all the ACA repeal bills that he tried to get behind, cut Medicaid incredibly sharply. Uh, and it seems like Republicans kind of hit on this idea that they need, and and actually not just Trump, but it's like like Orrin Cass, right? Like the more like thinky. Populists—they're not big defenders of this social safety net either. It's like they want the activist government to help people, but like maybe not, maybe not those people,
2: right? And I think that that goes to something that I've been interested in. Um, we talked a little bit about judicial nominations and how Mitch McConnell, like, there is very much a sense of this administration. And the reason why you're hearing from a host of longtime conservative pundits saying like, ah, in 2020, I will vote for Donald Trump is because it's not because they have become more like Donald Trump, but because Donald Trump has become a rank and file Republican who also yells a lot on the Internet about things nobody else cares about besides people who do our job. And so I think that that economic populism, and I've argued about this with uh, people who espouse kind of a populist conservatism is that that was projected onto Trump by him saying words like healthcare care for everyone and how much he didn't really care about deficit spending. But at no point was he like, You know, even right now, we're in the midst of stimulus negotiations that are still ongoing that he walked away from a couple of weeks ago on Twitter and then started talking about how like, oh, no, no, what I want is a much bigger number than whatever Nancy Pelosi is going with. And Mitch McConnell, understandably, because he's the Senate Republican who is probably actually in charge of a large swath of what this administration gets done, is like, Actually, I don't think people in the Senate have the stomach for this. And you heard from Senator Ron Johnson, who's the least populist person to perhaps ever exist, who is basically like, I don't think Republican voters want a big stimulus number because they're very concerned about the deficit. When what we've heard for the last five years is actually Republican voters don't care that much about the deficit. So I think that it's it's interesting because we've been talking a little bit about what Donald Trump would do in a second term. And based on everything we know, he has he's not quite sure of what he would do in a second term. We heard during the Republican National Convention that the 2020 Republican National Platform is the same one of 2016, which spends like half of it yelling about how bad Barack Obama is, which notably has been a large focus of Donald Trump's 2020 campaign is to pretend that Hillary Clinton is running again and just go with that. And I think that the economic populism upon which a host of people have built up entire consulting and philosophical concepts is largely imaginary and illusory, especially when you're seeing people who are starting to say, like, actually, I don't, you know, I don't think we need that much deficit. We don't need more deficit spending. Actually, I think what we should do is listen to Stephen Moore and Art Laffer more about how what we really need is a payroll tax cut because you know payroll tax cuts really help people who are unemployed, as everyone knows. So I think that it, it's fascinating how this the conceit of Trump as the inventor of Trumpism has now turned into Donald Trump normal Republican, not normal as in good, but normal as in adheres to a norm and guy who just happens to yell a lot, which is why, you know, when people are like, oh, like Ben Shapiro said that he was going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm like, well, Ben Shapiro is a conservative Republican and so is Donald Trump. And here we are now. What I find super
4: interesting about this, though, is that reelecting Donald Trump is fundamentally less important for getting, you know, like you want a signature on Republican Congress passed bills, but it's not like you need Trump in that seat. In, you know, obviously, the entire Republican base has been persuaded that Donald Trump or the entire Republican kind of party establishment has been persuaded that Donald Trump is more popular than they are individually or collectively. And therefore, you know, they need to cling to him to stay in power. But what I think is missing from the assumption that Donald Trump, because he has exhibited very little interest in what he could get done if reelected, isn't going to is going to somehow kind of get out of the way and let the conservatives do their thing. And The reason I'm thinking about that is because a lot of the stuff that that generally happens in a second term you know, if a legislative agenda gets thwarted or like once the president is obviously a lame duck or any of that uh, happens in terms of the kind of regulatory things that take a long time to develop. So might not have gotten done in the first term, you know, may not even be able to get fully finished in the second term, but are the occasion to not just undo what the last guy did to the extent that that's legally feasible, but actually find places in the text where you can pull policy toward you know c- toward your ideological goals for administrations to come that's going to require motivated people in those roles and we know that Donald Trump isn't very keen on getting people permanently appointed that he actually sees it as an asset to have people continuing to serve in acting circumstances even when that means he has to shuffle them around or you know keep switching them out with other people or put people in charge of agencies whose internal functions they don't necessarily understand. So what I'm wondering really is how much opportunity cost is there if you are committed to deregulation of having a bunch of people who don't necessarily see this per, this appointed position as permanent, who may not have the understanding of the agency to be able to get in there on day one and get things going, and who may not have the commitment to the exact same agenda items that whatever their predecessor you know, had. What's the opportunity cost of that versus a standard issue deregulatory, you know, George W. Bush second term kind of administration? I think that that's something that really isn't fully understood, partly because, you know, we don't have the counterfactual of like a standard Republican promising to staff up, to actually staff up the executive branch. But it is something that, you know, for all of the, well, there is certainly something to be said for it's better for conservatives to have nobody in the executive branch in appointed positions than it would be for liberals to have nobody in the executive branch in appointed positions, because it means that thing that like bad, the things that, they would consider overly activist can't get done, that you are giving up any potential for in in the exact opposite way of the we're staffing up the bench so that even if Democrats win, you know, even if Democrats sweep in 2020, there's going to be an obvious impediment to them enacting their agenda. They're leaving that on the table or they could be leaving that on the table unless there's either a radically different approach to appointments in the second term or a push from conservative elites to actually take that stuff more seriously.
3: You know, uh, the regulatory issues vary quite a bit across domains. Right. And, you know, Trump, all Republicans are pretty unified around the idea that we need less strict environmental regulation um, and sort of just less stringent enforcement of of most aspects of of federal labor law. Uh, What's been interesting is that in Bill Barr at the Justice Department, Trump has found a cabinet secretary who is very um, like engaged you know, and and doing things, but also pretty enthusiastic about sort of turning some of Trump's mouth noises into policy. And so that's involved both. So racial discrimination litigation against Yale um which i think would have implications going forward right so they charge that yale's admissions policies discriminate against asian people and against white people and this could conceivably be used as a much broader sort of legal theory against um a lot of i guess i guess what we now call diversity equity and inclusion initiatives at at various companies going forward and that would not be a deregulatory impulse, right? That would be like affirmative, conservative regulation of the kind of racial space in right now, college admissions, but conceivably a a lot of aspects of of employment. And the Justice Department also did a a lawsuit, uh, antitrust lawsuit against Google, uh, which was filed the morning that we are recording. I've only had a very superficial look at it. Uh, But what's interesting is that it is not packed with random conservative hobby horses, like it's a real uh, antitrust complaint based on sort of long standing complaints about Google from smaller internet companies, um, which is both. I mean, I don't know. It's just it's it's different from the kind of normal Trump Thing Where you have like one layer of incredibly orthodox conservative governance and another layer of like weird tweets about stuff. It's like it seems like Trump wanted more antitrust scrutiny of big technology companies. And instead of scrutiny of the company Trump was maddest about. Or scrutiny that's about the thing that Trump was maddest about. It is the thing that antitrust attorneys had long told me was the most plausible tech antitrust case. And like it's now happening and it's weird. It's only Republican attorneys general have signed on to the suit. No Democrats have. So it's like you keep thinking, you keep looking for some kind of like weird hide the ball thing. And it's about how Steve Bannon got shadow banned. Uh, But as far as I can tell, like it's, it's not. This is just like straight up. They let loose the antitrust lawyers on the technology sector because that is a thing that Trump had been saying they should do. And I don't really know how to think about the implications of that going forward—it's—it's. It's really oh, I totally at, do. It's. All right, I know exactly how to think about it. Tell me. The how question to think.
4: here is: the question here is, do you take the? Rod Rosenstein approach to firing Jim Comey? Or do you take the Donald Trump talking to Lester Holt approach to firing Jim Comey? Right? Like, that's an there. This is this is not the first time that this administration has gone after someone you were expecting them to go after for reasons that facially are a lot more within the rules of the game than the thing that they wanted them to go after them for. And, you know, obviously, there is an upside to that when it comes to your lay likelihood of success at going after that target at that time. But there's a downside if you actually want to, for example, change the norms that the FBI shouldn't go after your political opponents just because they're your political opponents. Or if you want to change antitrust law to, you know, to force them to to force major tech companies as a general rule to treat to be more cautious about trying to affirmatively promote political balance or what have you. Th- that's obviously particularly relevant in the DOJ context because that's where you're making arguments for a judge. But then what the judge does is precedent. Uh, I, the other thing I was thinking about here would be the um, Time Warner merger uh, from the fr- from 2018. Right. right. Where like it was another case of the arguments that were getting made in court sounded totally independent of the po- the allegations that there was some political interference. Um, there's a limited list of people of like entities that Donald Trump might have a personal animosity toward that are that who's for which his animosity is distinct from conservative for, or from like from grievances that can be ideologically framed easily. I think the culture war stuff is much more representative of this. Right. Because the things that make elite universities conservative targets are, in fact, things that have been litigated, you know, to a certain extent it's true that very few people who can criticize affirmative action are super motivated by discrimination against asian and asian american applicants but like that's become the way that gets talked about it's not it's not like that's a novel legal theory it's something that i think people who are moderately politically informed reading through a brief can understand that this is not necessarily you know this this is the 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 pivot but that's the pivot that's standard but i do think that it's that there are cases, and the Google antitrust litigation is one of them, where you really do, if you're Bill Barr, have to make a choice between, do I increase the chances that I read into federal legal precedent the substantive arguments that my boss wants me to make or do I increase the chances that I can go back to my boss saying, boss, I got this slapdown on Google you asked for even if the actual reasoning is something that isn't going to help your cause in the long run.
3: All right, we should take a second break and, and, and do our white paper.
0: We all need an upgrade every once in a while. Whether it's that outdated car in your garage or that cell phone that you bought over three years ago, it's good to have the best technology around. And great news, because now you can have the most advanced technology in the privacy of your own home. The NuMi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. The smart toilet combines unmatched aesthetics with cutting edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings that let you fine-tune every option to your exact preferences. From ambient colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system, to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. Plus, the NUMI 2.0 comes equipped with Power Saver Mode for energy efficiency and emergency flush for power outages, so you don't have to worry about wasted energy. Connecting you to an oasis of cleanliness and comfort, the NUMI 2.0 can revolutionize your bathroom, making it more than a toilet. It's a work of art, Learn more at Kohler.com.
1: Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade, and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Do more with Viator. Okay, so long
3: awaited, much discussed. Andrew Sprague uh, brings to us Immigration and Entrepreneurship in the United States by Pierre Azoulay, Benjamin Jones, Daniel Kim, and Javier Miranda. Um, These are uh, people from a a number of universities and the Census Bureau. Um, As is often the case, when you get census people on your paper, you gain access to unique administrative data. Um, And so they look at immigrants in their roles as uh, sort of the founders of companies and the employers of people. Um, And I think, you know, we all sort of know this in Intuitively, like I mean, they're they're like famous like immigrant CEOs of huge tech companies, but also just like a lot of dry cleaning shops and Chinese restaurants and things like that 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 are owned by by immigrants. And so they find um, that that immigrants' role as job creators actually uh, outnumbers their role as job havers. This is primarily driven by high growth startups that employ lots and lots of people uh, that the sort of the, the nature of the way economic scale works is that if you found like a couple of huge companies that, you know, offsets like a, a huge number of, of other people coming in, um, you know, but it means that on the whole, right, if you want to think about immigration as purely a uh, sort of competition for labor market slots, that there are more being opened up by Immigrant-owned firms than there are actual jobs being held by immigrants as a whole. Um, as is standard for these things, I don't think anyone who's like paranoid about you know uh, Spanish language signage coming to their local Target is going to suddenly have their their minds altered by this. Uh, but I do think it's relevant to things like we were talking about a potential desk drawer full of more efforts to crack down on student visas, things, things like that, that the the kind of legal immigration channels to the United States being a little bit slack in terms of like exactly what it is you need to say you're doing, I think have had substantial benefits to the economy over the long haul. Like Nobody puts on their visa application like, and then I'm going to found Google like it doesn't it doesn't work like that right like you need to have some sort of flexibility in terms of who gets in and and why to have these impacts
4: so this is actually what drove me absolutely nuts about this paper right is that it doesn't disaggregate at all between it it does nothing to illuminate whether we're talking about people who were who came to the US when they were 6 months old or whether we're talking about people who during their spare time on an h1b visa working for Google had a really cool side project that they then sp- spun off with their colleagues and ultimately you know were able to uh to get Google or their su- successor company to sponsor them for a green card like there are obviously well, you need a whole
3: different set of uh administrative data to get that <laughs> and, and
4: I under- I understand the limitations of it but what that means is that it does confound the question, like there's the model that they're using, which, you know, I they're not trying to present as comprehensive. It's very, very theoretical. It's very abstract. It's not something that, you know, it, they're, they're not trying to purely map this to the consequences of the real world and how companies get started or model anything like access to capital or anything like that. But what they end up doing is reducing the the combination of all the things that make one person more likely than another person to start their own firm as entrepreneurial acumen. And when you do that, and then you don't talk about the fact that not every immigrant, that some immigrants who come to the United States are, in fact, selected on the basis of the kind of things that make them more likely to start tech companies. And meanwhile, totally independently of that, many immigrants to the United States are not allowed to leave their jobs and start their own companies or, you know, aren't allowed to stay here permanently or some combination of the two aren't allowed to stay here permanently and aren't allowed to leave their companies while they are here, Um, especially because the people who are in that last set of circumstances are unusually likely to be work visa holders. So the high-skilled workers. That you're selecting as high skilled workers are actually the people who can't go start their own firms without running afoul of their visa status. When you fail to talk about any of that, you're opening the door up for a conversation that is okay. So we know that some immigrants are smart and likely to start firms. But surely not every low skilled immigrant we let in is likely to start Google or like very few of them are. And therefore, why should we let in, you know, why should we let in people who aren't as skilled, even though, you know, in practice, the people who start firms are often the children of refugees or, you know, there are more cases of upward mobility. If you want to look at the average and say, well, immigrants are on average more entrepreneurial than Americans, you are opening the door to saying, okay. Let's try to select for only the immigrants who are more entrepreneurial, because that's apparently something that we can now do if we're essentializing entrepreneurialness as an innate thing.
2: Right. There's a mention in this piece about the historical literature emphasizing a frontier spirit associated with adventurous migrants, which is a turn of phrase I have never heard before. But yeah, I think that it's worth mentioning that this paper does not provide that breakdown. I think that that's to its detriment.
3: Yes. uh, But I also think, well, you will see in my book, One Billion Americans, which you should buy. uh, I'm just like, I don't think it's if you relax the assumption that has dominated Congress, that the number of visas issued has to be a fixed pool whereby any new visas to anybody has to be taken away from somebody else. Like, I think you see a perfectly reasonable argument for saying that we should be giving more visas to people with technical skills who would like to come to the United States, that the impact of such immigrants to the United States on the United States economy is very, very, very strongly positive, and that we don't Precisely because their impact is so strongly positive, there's like no need to then yank an equal and offsetting number of visas for refugees or for family members of U.S. citizens or something else away, right? That like if you think about something that is additive, um, there's just a strong case for adding it. Right. And turning it into this like sticking point about the diversity visa lottery, which diversity visa lottery advocates will want me to say, does in practice bring in a disproportionately high skilled population anyway. Um, you know, like it just if you can think about policy in like a rational way rather than in a Congress brain kind of way. To say, like, well, we can't have more immigrants of the kind that are less controversial because it has to be yoked to an unrelated controversy is like that's a great example of like why the United States um, governance is like increasingly circling the toilet, because it's like, do do the agreeable things, you know, and like we could we could we could have a nicer, a nicer, a nicer universe for ourselves.
4: I mean, this isn't just a question of, like, the the top-line numbers question, though, right? It's also a question of on what terms do you let people enter the country? And the push for we should let in high-skilled immigrants because they're more likely to become entrepreneurs, like, you don't just need to increase H-1B numbers for that. You need to totally revamp the H-1B program so that it's not dependent on the sponsoring employer, oh, sure. which... Obviously, is going to make the very incumbent employers who are most enthusiastic about H one B's a lot shakier, and it also does run into like the ideological question of, of well, why do we want high skilled workers? Because not everyone who supports more high skilled immigration is is saying well, we need to support. X number of high-skilled workers with no restrictions on their work visas so that some smaller number of them can become entrepreneurs. Some of them are saying, we need more high-skilled workers in the country because our firms need more high-skilled employees. And when those two interests are, you know, when, when you're talking about do you tie a work visa to employ do you tie a visa to employment at a particular company or not, those two accounts of why we need high-skilled immigration are going to come into conflict.
3: I mean, I think in terms of the current Paradigm of of you know visa allocation in the United States. The most direct relevance is to student visas, and then to what happens to people you know after the completion of their degrees, right? But but to say but to say okay, like one one door into the United States is that like you gain admission to a credentialed academic program, right? And then we could say, I mean, we could set some you know, standards around what the program has to be, but it's like, you know, you do it and and, and then you stay rather than needing to go through. I mean, if you ever talk to foreign born U.S. college graduates who, you know, they get friends here, they often have an interest in the United States, they meet people. Um, and then there's this like incredible song and dance of like trying to get a green card, trying to get optional practical training, like trying to get something to, to stick around. And there's been a question sort of kicking around forever as to like what, Why do we treat people on student visas roughly as if they're tourists, right? Who, like, we got to, like, watch out because, like, the purpose of people graduating college typically is to then like go get a job right and like why is the immigration system so paranoid about the idea that four years of study in the united states culminating in a bachelor's degree will lead to you having employment opportunities here when like for native born americans we consider that like the the correct outcome
4: well because again that's a i think that's the result of different arguments for why immigrants are good leading to different things, right? If you endorse the idea that the United States as the most developed country in the world, like that the best thing we can do for other countries in the long run is to have educated cadres of, you know, people who, like, have the finest education available who then go back to their home countries and improve economic conditions there so that generations from now, their populaces won't need to emigrate in order to find uh, good terrible. economic outcomes. Like that's, but but that is, but that's an account of <laughs> yeah, yeah. what, you know, There's there's an argument that, like, Or for that matter, if you're a university and you're trying to get more, you know, you're trying to maximize the number of student visas, of course, it's in your interest to say, look, you don't have to give us the number of people who you imagine settling here permanently. Just admit admit them as students now and you can decide whether you actually want them or not later on. Like there are all kinds the the problem is that fundamentally, if we're giving out visas based on what role you're supposed to fill in society, like you are coming as the spouse of a work visa holder, and therefore you cannot yourself work. You are coming as a student visa holder, and therefore the number of jobs that you can take is wildly limited because there's concern that you're going to abuse the terms of your student visa. As long as we're doing that, of course, there are going to be weird little coalitions around any particular kind of visa in which the people who want more of those kinds of people are going to end up arguing the same thing as the people who don't want them to stay. That makes sense.
3: All right. Um, so thanks, guys. Uh, thanks uh, to, to to Andrew for uh, playing along with the lottery. Thanks um, to, to Darren Jane as well for helping me with some, uh, some book marketing. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, and the Weeds will be back On Friday,
0: when you surround yourself with the best tech, that's an instant level up. So, shouldn't you level up in every room of your house? The NUMI 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object and cutting edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings to match your exact preferences, from ambient colored lighting and a built in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet, it's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit ServiceNow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.